Hello everybody and welcome back to the Alien vs Predator Galaxy podcast, the original Alien and Predator podcast. I'm regular host Aaron Percival. Today I'm flying solo. Uh, Adam's not available for this one because he doesn't want to spoil the end of the book for himself. Oh, can I be an irregular host? Alex White, everybody. One of (laughs) the best people I know and easily one of the alien gods as far as I'm concerned at the minute when it comes to just cracking out good quality crap that's crap. (laughs) Good quality stories (laughs) that's up there. With isolation and the film. That is my British slang coming through there. It's all good. It's all good. Listen, all I want to do is be as good as Stephanie Perry. Okay. Okay. Yes. Because as far as I'm concerned, you're up there with her. Because my top five goes Music of the Spears, which was uh, Yvonne Navarro. Navarro. Berserker, which is uh, Stephanie Perry. Cold Forge, obviously, Alex. Ziegler with Phalanx. And number five is this beautiful motherfucker. Oh, two of them. Two in the top five. Two in the top five. Even better, out of all of Titans so far, so out of Cold Forge, out of Phalanx, good fucking cover art for once. Yes. Oh my God, it was so beautiful. When I saw it, I gasped. <laughs> it's wonderful. Titan only sent me six of them. Of, of all the things to just complain at Titan for, it is generally always stop doing, stop letting your interns make the covers for these books. So, yes. I really feel for those graphic designers. You know, I really do. I don't know what circumstances created them. You know, I've professionally managed graphic designers for a long time, so I'm always like, not sure where those covers came from, but I'm glad they stopped. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope it keeps going because I think, I think Infiltrator was better, but it's still... Yeah, it kind of looks like a, um, a little action figure. It looks me. like Necker's Necker's albino alien. Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah, it's it's, it's the po- it's the arm. I think, but you know, that's okay because I'm stoked as hell for Fire Team. Oh my god, I can't wait to play that game. Have you played oh, it? Me too. Try, trying trying to weasel my way into a a gameplay demo of it, but not not there yet. Oh, they need to. Yeah, they need to. Matt Matt Hickson needs to hook you up or whatever. Hopefully, hopefully something comes of that one. Yeah. I'm not all the way through Infiltrator yet, but we're not here to talk about... Well, I suppose Infiltrator might come up a little bit, you know. Have, have yeah, you read I, it? I, I hear that uh, I hear that old Weston tied me in some. Yes, he certainly did. I've got to that point in it, actually, literally earlier. So uh, that's Phalanx and Infiltrator that's now tied into um, the Cold Forge. Yeah, yeah, we've, we've got the Plagiarist Prepotence era. <laughs> mm-hmm. All I wanted to do was graffiti the alien phantom. <laughs> Make your mark. That's right. You certainly have. Certainly have. So, if anybody hasn't guessed, Alex White is here today to talk about their last latest novel, Mm -hmm. Into Charybdis. Uh, Sequel? Well, okay. Okay. Spoilers. (laughs) Before we get too far, okay? Before we get in there, spoilers right away. Ghost sequel to The Cold Forge. That's right. I didn't even know that when you were when we were reading the um, the evolving draft, the first draft. That was so fun to know that the whole time, and just like when I sent you all those pages, I couldn't sleep. I was like, "Here it is. Do it. Did it work?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when I figured it out, I was just like, "Holy shit." <laughs> Alex, what is this? And then everybody else, everybody else is like, "Have you only just figured it out, you slow bastard?" I'm like, yes. 
That was so fun. That was so fun. And and I really, you know, I wanted to bring back something from the Cold Forge, but it's like, you know, there's only one survivor. Also, spoilers. <laughs> yeah. With only one survivor, and, and she's like, doesn't seem to have a really positive outlook. And and so that was why I was like, okay, well, you know, everybody kept asking for a sequel, but I felt like a direct sequel didn't really work for me. And, and you'd said, you know, when we spoke after Cold Forge came out, you, you said to me, you know, I have no interest in continuing Blue's story. Right. Well, because I felt like it was potentially distasteful. How so? Well, she's an interesting character, and she serves a vital purpose to the story of the Cold Forge. I mean, she's a queer, disabled woman of color who's dealing with a really disturbing set of circumstances that have caused her to be sort of bad a little bit. But also, you know, she's a, a really sympathetic character, and, and her plight is really close to my heart. So when it's like, I don't, I don't want to just make a sequel about her that doesn't resonate with the same amount of emotional depth as the original. Okay, so it it was more about finding a way to continue it meaningfully, right? Well, and you know, and 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 even back then, you you'd said something that you know was a was a was a dead giveaway for a good way to go about it. I, I have every faith that you know I could have arrived there myself eventually, but <laughs> I do love that you you know you, you were kind of I was expecting you to mutate, and I was like, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> that would totally work, and then she doesn't get to be the main character anymore because it's really hard to. If I was like, yeah, now she's the main character, we're going to do the entire book from the perspective of this mutated alien. Like you could, but part of the thing about Alien that makes it so beautiful is how much mystery there is in it. And the more time that you spend in their head, and I was actually even reluctant to have that one chapter from her perspective post-mutation, because the more that you have in that character's head, the more or the less mysterious the alien becomes. How do they see? Is it in the visible light spectrum, the infrared spectrum? What's safe to hide from them? Well, we don't nail that down because writers need different different things at different times, right? They just saw him. Sorry, it was bad. It's <laughs> <laughs> all right. If you get under a desk, though, you're fine. If anything's taught me that, it's we can hide from aliens under a desk playing round around the table. Oh, God. It, you know, in the same way, that comment really hit me in the same way as the in isolation where you know you're you're first under the desk and you hear the weight of the alien the first time you ever hear it run mm -hmm. that really stuck with me i made it right into the cold forge yeah i think i think i picked up on that one yeah you did you did a, a bunch of people commented they're like you must have played alien isolation <laughs> because it's true i mean that was yeah i, I love that bong 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 stab <laughs> I think it's it's brilliant because it's a way it's the it's the most authentic alien experience I think. Oh my god. In, ter in terms of you are directly in there, you know, your body is reacting the same way that, you know, Lambert's or or, or Dallas's would have. So it's beneficial as a way I think for writers because you know, what's the same, right? What you know. Mm -hmm. With plain isolation, you know, you physically know what it's it was like. It's a hell of a training situation. course, wasn't it? Yeah. I know. It was so good. And the other thing that I liked about isolation was it gave a lot of permission to me with regard to like the tech level. One of the things that had never set well with me was the anachronism of Prometheus. You know how you're like, well, it's a science vessel. I mean, I, you can explain it away. It doesn't make him any more satisfying. Yeah, but I mean, we all know that the difference is just 30 years. That's the difference. It's not that one's a science vessel and one's not. You don't expect me to believe that some of you have holograms and the others of you can barely afford CRTs. <laughs> you know, like, I don't think so. 
But I suppose it depends how scummy and cheap the companies do get in the future because so, so much of, I think I said this to Eric, one of our other co-hosts, and I said it again to Adam the other day because he's only just, ugh, he's only just got around to reading The Cold Forge and Charybdis. I'm good for him. Charybdis. Charybdis, yeah. I'm terrible Charybdis. with pronunciation. Oh, no, it's fine. I knew I was going to get that when I named it that. It's fine. So he's only just got around to reading it and he's been saying things to me and I'm like, yeah, but this this is actually quite realistic. This Have you, have you worked for a big evil company before? Because this is entirely my experience <laughs> yeah. with the way things work. It's like, it seems so outlandish until you're in there, in, in the real world. There are a lot of work stories that have been kind of disassembled and reassembled into the alien books that that is probably the place where i most directly complain about my co-workers <laughs> i remember you saying from the first from the first book you were like i hope people don't read this and come to me and realize who's um who's based on who yeah though i will tell you there's one guy in into charybdis noah i'd love it if that guy knew <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah come forward saying that's you <laughs> yeah oh i know and, and it really is it really is like that i mean i always tell people like whenever somebody's like you know how do you find relevance in alien i'm like what are you talking about we live there mm-hmm. like look at any global supply chain literally any global supply chain and you will find something akin to Wayland yutani and and it's like hey do you like major brands of chocolate it's cool they're picked by slave kids and it's like unless you see something that says they're not using slavery they won't guarantee it and it's like that's most chocolate companies. That is most of them. I think it's. I think Cadbury's in them. You have to go look it up. It's an ever-changing list, sadly. But that is our capitalist hellscape that you know I actively participate in. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> but it's true though that these sorts of these sorts of concerns are very real. Very very real. To, I mean, to me, the entire shape of my adult life has been determined by insurance. You know, I have chronic pain and two disabled members of my family. I have to pick my jobs based on insurance because of the American economy. You know, I could have been a novelist full time years ago, but that's not the way that my country's laid out. My country's laid out to favor Wayland Utani, who I work for. That's how you get insurance, you know. So, yeah. So, yeah, it seems outlandish, but it is not. No, I agree. So I wanted to just talk a little bit about the reaction to Cold Forge and mm. how that actually played into, you know, into the new book. You know, when, when you were on the podcast last, you know, you, you did speak about that panel at DragonCon and the whole death threat situation. So, you, you know, you went mm. into this book, a little blind, I think, found out some stories. Yeah. And then they were like, yeah, you get death threats. And I was like, oh, my God, that's terrifying. Right. And I think the situation played out a lot more differently to than what you were expecting. Yeah, everybody was like super nice. <laughs> you've you've become a quite the revered figure. Um, <laughs> it, it must be said. So you know what what's it been like going from that expectation to that reaction, especially when it played such a huge role in in book two getting made. Well, I mean, first of all, I love the alien fandom unabashedly y'all are great y'all treat me so well and i love it and at the same time you know yeah we got some bad eggs the death threats came yeah i guess so i mean not for cold forge and not for into charybdis it was for being a popular author who likes to wear makeup i got i got i got a couple of them but you know what i do i log them and i ignore them and 
there's more that I do, but we can we can leave that aside. I don't I don't leave them alone. <laughs> but anyway, the thing is, of course, that's terrifying. But at the same time, Alien is a fairly courageous franchise in terms of what it has to say. And it's funny because it's owned by you know it's owned by Whalen Yutani, right? <laughs> like. <laughs> And and you kind of have to go like, yeah, but it's still our anthem. It's still our song, you know, like, sure, you make all your money off of us. But at the end of the day, it's our message that we want to take home. And, and that's what makes it so special. Because, I mean, otherwise, you know, I always joke like, oh, I got to get back to work on my face fucking fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, because when you look at it, it's sort of really silly and sort of not at all silly. Anyway, I love I love Alien. Let's talk about it some more. Let's talk a little about how the story came to be. You know, unlike The Cold Forge, it wasn't built on subverting expectations as such, you know, like like the like the first one was. It was this wholly original setup and world building. Oh, okay, yeah. Because uh, I was like, not subverting expectations. Did you get to the halfway point? Yes, yes, I did. <laughs> you, you know what I mean. You pick up The Cold Forge and it sounds like Rogue, it sounds like Labyrinth, but it's fucking not. Oh, yeah. The whole setup for, for Charybdis is nothing like Alien. I couldn't pick a comic out and go, yeah, it sounds like this one. Oh, nice. So where where, where did the foundations come from for the book? Where where did you start with this concept? Well, there are a couple of, a couple of different places. First of all, I, I loved the sequence in Resurrection Underwater as a kid. It, it really did stick with me. I thought it was really cool. And I was like, I want aliens in water. Because at first, Charybdis was like a pretty, well, it wasn't called Charybdis. Whenever I'm imagining an alien story, it basically starts out on LV-426 or a spaceship. You know, I, it's not it's not on purpose, but it's just like they're on a planet. It's probably shitty. <laughs> you know, like I'm sure it's windy, probably smoky. There's a bunch of rocks everywhere. <laughs> Weird formations, maybe some that look like dicks. Who knows? Right. <laughs> Nailed it. And that's how much you have to think about that when you're coming up with plots. If you don't want to, it doesn't really matter that much. And and that's actually one of the points of the Cold Forge is, is like, yeah, it's the same setting as every setting. It's a commodified setting, if I could go as far as saying that. And so that's why, that's why, as you say, it subverts expectations. But in this case, it was like, I think Steve was like, why don't we set it somewhere that they really haven't seen before? And I was like, okay, stop talking. Because <laughs> like, yes, I agree. Stop talking. You know, I, I always feel that way because I always want my ideas to be Yours. You know, mine. Yeah, I know. It's terrible, but it's true. I'm totally yeah. arrogant that way. But I also don't want people to feel like I, I'm like riding their coattails. Hopefully when you read into Charybdis, you weren't like, geez, I basically wrote this whole book for you. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, I hope you were like, wow, I was hoping to see this. Well, I mean, it's, it's like I said in my review, you know, it felt like you were writing it for me. Well, y'all were the beta readers. You were the focus group. So in a lot of ways, I was. <laughs> But it wasn't like we were sat there going, you know what would be cool? No, true, true. Yeah, well. So, you know, when, when I got to all the bits, and, although, you know, obviously we'll get on to a bit later that you did basically steal from me. Oh, no, it's true. In in general, you know, I, I said it felt like you were just sat there picking my brain without me knowing and picking mm -hmm. elements that I wanted. So, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the experiment. That's That's why I maintain a focus group. In my day job, I do a lot of this sort of thing as well. And so... If I ask you what you want, and then I show you what you wanted, then that's just me stealing your ideas, right? That's 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 all I do. And if I ask you, if I don't ask you what you want, but I find out who you are, and I give you what you want without you knowing, then I have something that I can be sure is successful later with other people. And so I had, you know, the, the focus group was a fairly diverse group of people. 
lots of lots of different backgrounds, lots of different thoughts. But we we were talking about where Charybdis came from. Uh-huh. So first of all, a water world uh, was like my first thought. And by the way, I was like, it's a water world with a data center and there's water pouring into the data center and all this other stuff. I finished Charybdis and I went back and watched Rogue One. And that's Scarif. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have even thought that. I've already seen Rogue One twice. I, I, always liked it. I know. And I was watching it and I was looking at Scarif and I was like, oof, oof. <laughs> it's very much like Charybdis. <laughs> I've not seen anybody make that comparison, so I think you're safe. Uh, well, I tried to keep it. Uh, yeah, I tried to go like when I was going back through. I was like, make sure this is different. You know, really make it distinct. Really make it your own, and focus on the geology. And really, the idea for Charybdis didn't come. I didn't think it came from Rogue One. Geez, I had seen it before writing the book, so maybe you know, like I don't know. I'm always afraid of that, right? I'm afraid that I'm going to write some really good song and I'm going to perform it, and then people are going to be like, Alex, if you change the lyrics, that's Nirvana. You know, or something You're like you didn't write that. You're an idiot. A bit of subconsciousness. I know. I'm always terrified of that. But no, where it came from was all these like I- I'm afraid of like the ring. Like I hate like these oubliettes, these wells that you can fall into, stuff like that. It's terrifying. When I was a kid, there was this EC comic. They re-released all the Tales from the Crypt EC comics. So those were my first two comic books for Tales from the Crypt. And uh, I was a little kid, and there was one in particular about sinkholes. And it was about how like a sinkhole like opened up and like swallowed this guy and like and and it led to like an underground river. So like his body was just like swept through the reservoir. He died, of course, immediately. And and no one would ever recover him. Ah, you know, and I was like, that's terrible. Well, all these years later, of course, that came back. And and the same with the ring. I mean, that really spoke to me in a lot of ways because I'd already been exposed to this one story and it just kept coming back and kept coming back. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing more frightening to me than the idea of just being kind of washed into nothing, which is weird because it's like if I was blown out of an airlock, I'd be like, oh, OK, you know, <laughs> I guess that's a cooler way to die than washed into nothing. That's interesting because, you know, that, that plays into Cameron quite early on as well, doesn't it? So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it does. Well, and 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 with other characters later, <laughs> yes. guess guess how many characters end up down there? You know, like most of them. And so that that created a lot of thematic tension. So that's where the theme came from. The American contractors came from. So I've been working in building integrations for like four years. So I actually did a lot of the same types of. I'm an expert in the field that the McAllen integrations people are experts in. And one thing that I did was I, I flew all over to do contextual inquiries and learn about how smart cities are made and, and and specifically smart buildings because buildings are they're more akin to like running a nuclear power plant than they are to like running a generator. Does that make sense? A skyscraper has an AC unit, a chiller, a furnace, a bo- you know, a boiler, all this, all these super duper complicated pieces of equipment that, like, if they broke, depending on how they break, there could be very serious safety ramifications. And you know, when you're running millions and millions of pounds of air through a building every single day, that's actually an engineering marvel. And so the systems that are designed to find out about these systems are really sophisticated. So all of these different climate control systems all through your building, all your lighting grid, everything electrical in your building all your data points they're all producing data they're all iot devices right and so all that stuff comes together at a single central point of controllability or observability and that's what sitesys does by the way so what cameron and shy are working together to do in the beginning of the book is make sure that that door lock appears in our central console for when dorian later uses it to kill everyone right like <laughs> You know what I mean? Like somebody had to link the door lock to the console somehow. And that's that process is called commissioning. Yes, you said Dorian. 
I did. I know. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> he, you know, he he used a commissioned system to kill a bunch of people. He was controlling the door locks from a central network. You can't do that without somebody linking them in. That was in Cold Forge, was it? It was in Cold Forge. The door stuff. Oh yeah. There was also door stuff. Yeah. Yes, he was in. Yes, he was yeah, at the lights as well. Yeah. He was at Juno. Yeah, and, I remember now. And like later, you know how you like use the lighting grid to like guide the aliens around. You know, like later and into current. <laughs> I was like, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take the piss out of my last book. I love doing that. I love doing that. And it's just because, you know, at least we can be like, no, you're wrong. It would work. Yeah. We've seen this. It worked. It's fine. And also, you know, Dorian so effectively used the concepts that I was learning because I had just started that job when I wrote Cold Forge that I was worried about being repetitive. And so I wanted to make sure that like when they controlled the colony systems to defend themselves later, seal themselves off, move themselves around, move the aliens around, that kind of stuff, that it wasn't derivative of Cold Forge. But the people that I meet met on these contextual inquiries, they're roughnecks, right? They're not, they're not like, I mean, they're engineers sometimes, but they're covered in concrete dust. You know, they'll, they'll have like a rough polo, you know, khakis and they're, you know, and they're in these construction sites. A bit of Bratton Parker. I don't get that reference, actually. I'm going to be honest, but I'm going to let you. Oh, Brett and Parker. Brett, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry. I heard Brant Parker and I was like, who's that? Uh, Brett and Parker. Exactly. Exactly. And and what I kind of took away from this is that, and, and of course, I grew up in the South and I'm, I'm from here and I live here in the American South. You know, rednecks, they can, they can fix anything. It's not going to work forever. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to work for very long, even. Well, they can fix anything. And and I like that can-do kind of attitude. And I wanted to show a different side of them than maybe was traditionally shown. Because I think that, you know, the xenophobia that you see kind of early on in Charybdis is a bit of a red herring. It's not about how the American contractors are a problem. I mean, it sort of is. Mary's a little bit of a problem, for example. But most of the time, it's like, oh, these people could have gotten along. They could have figured it out. Yeah, and Iran was just a likely choice. That's where that part came from. It was like, yeah, America always has problems with Iran. Our countries never get along. So speaking speaking of that one then, because Adam did actually ask me, even though he couldn't be on, to ask you about um, the Iranian situation. <laughs> oh, the situation. The situation, well, Iranian topic, I, I don't know. All right. <laughs> so he, he asked, one of the things that I found interesting was the culture of the data storage facilities and its ties to the Iranian government, mm -hmm. also the geopolitical tensions present. Mm -hmm. Did you do a good deal of research to assist you in how you wanted to illustrate the customs and personalities of the colonists and that clash? Tons, tons. Hours and hours and hours of consuming cinema, of looking at books. Uh, I hired consultants, okay, uh, who both have master's degrees in poetry and English. You know, one of them is like a cultural consultant for like national theater companies for Persian and Iranian affairs. And and they're both, by the way, thanked in the book. And they 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 make brief appearances as the journalists in an email exchange at one part. But it was such a sensitive topic. But it was such an obvious choice. And no matter who I chose to be a potential adversary to America, there's always going to be more to the story than just they're against America, so they're bad. And so I was always like, I need to handle this as sensitively as possible. I want to make sure that somebody who reads this book does not go away with the message of Alex doesn't like Iranians. You know, I've got no love for a dictatorship. Sure. I didn't like my last one here in America. <laughs> You know, so I get it. <laughs> I'm not going to, you know, don't blame me for Trump and I won't blame you for that guy. And we can all be friends. 
and that was that was a big part of it though is i wanted to kind of illustrate like ever since 9-11 there's been a huge amount of islamophobia especially in my country and especially in my region of my country and i'm tired of it i'm tired of it there are people on 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 all sides of every conflict there are people there are normal people who live in the war and we need to recognize that because yeah sometimes there are tough things that need to be done as a country and other times we're just being used and we need to make sure that we know which ones are which. And that's why Anticorruptus is the shape it is, is because it's like, I want to make sure that you understand that these are these are living civilians who deserve your sympathy and your compassion. They're not Iranians. I mean, they are, but I don't want them to be othered to you. I want you to read it. And I don't want you to go like, oh, this is Iran rendered palatable for white people. Like, I want you to discover things that you like about it. And I want people who are familiar with the culture to say, oh, I love that dish. Or, oh, I, I yeah, my grandma acts like that. Again, that's why I was like working really hard with these consultants. And I did everything I said, let me tell you. Did you end up having to change much from their input or anything? Not a terrible amount because I, I was really exhaustive with my research, but there were a couple of things that they really improved for me. They made me aware of some situations that maybe they faced that I didn't know because I'm not Iranian. <laughs> yeah. And so that was really helpful. And, and again, if you're going to do something that's that sensitive, especially do it right, do it right. Don't play around and pay your consultants. Oh my God. And if you don't have money, write them into the book. <laughs> Payment in kind. That's right. That's right. I mean, would you rather have like, what, 200 bucks or that? You know, like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. my cultural consultants actually got uh, 650 a piece, which is, you know, the traditional kind of industry going right. So when you do hire people, I mean, it is important to hire them for what they're worth. Mm -hmm. So but dropping back a little bit, because, uh, you know, me and you, we, we don't do interviews. We do conversations. So I'm all over the bloody place. I know. It. In terms of questions. So blue. Now... That transformation was a goddamn draw drop for me. Mm. Not because it turned out you'd robbed me, but <laughs> just because... Sorry, fucker. <laughs> just because it's something I've always fucking wanted to see. And and I personally had been toying with the concept in a little fan-made thing. When I oh, got good. there, I, I went, fuck this, and um, started anew. That was fine. Uh, you know, so, and, and I'll tell you that I was really... I don't know what you meant when you said it too, because I mean, obviously Ripley 8 is an alien human hybrid. Yeah. And that was why I was like, because when you, you know, my initial reaction to that, I think was the same as most people's, which is like, what? No, <laughs> you know, kind of like an alien human hybrid, stupid. But, you know, Ripley 8 was on screen already. And there are a number of other ones, I think, right? We had Eloise in the comics, who was uh -huh. an, an android alien hybrid. Right, thing. right. But again, she she was, you know, because I liked the concept so much. Yeah. She's one I really liked, even if it was a sin. It, it, the, the, the foundations were a little bit silly. But, you know, Rip, Rip, Ripley 8 as well, you know, I find her hugely interesting because of her identity crisis. Yeah. This conflict. And, and again, it's something I love in Blue in this, um, because I think it also plays back to a little bit of a, her gender identity crisis in the first one mm -hmm. um, and, and the whole an Android situation, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I would call it a crisis. I think the crisis is an HR crisis. <laughs> But yeah, I know I get what you mean. Yeah, I, I always think of turmoil in a turmoil yeah, kind yeah, of stuff as, yeah. as, as crisis. And and she is she's discovering a lot about herself in Cold Forge and 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 some and into Charybdis. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, one of the things I wanted to make sure that I did distinctly though is I didn't like that Ripley Eight was like, and it looks like Sigourney Weaver. And I was like, well, but why? Like, that's not Promethean. That doesn't remind me of Mary Shelley. Hmm. You know, like, and that's kind of. 
I wanted to see, first of all, the, the genetic concept behind Ripley 8 drives me up a wall. <laughs> it's, it's exhausting. And, it, and I, I don't know if I've said this in this inter, in interviews with you before, but it was something that I thought was a good idea when I was a kid. And then I saw the movie yeah. and I was like, you, you, wrote a le- you wrote a letter to Fox pitching the idea. Yeah, I don't even know if I got the right studio. Maybe I sent it to some confused <laughs> mailroom at Paramount. <laughs> you know, but either way, I thought it was a good idea and I was wrong. And Ripley 8's a good idea, but not as imagined to me. Yeah, look, y'all, y'all resurrectionists can enjoy yourselves. <laughs> no, no need to tap, dance around me. You know, I like <laughs> the concept. I don't necessarily like the film. But I'm the kind right. of person that always generally focuses on the things that I like about something, even if I don't necessarily like the package. Right. Well, and so the shape of Blue's job forces her, well, really them, further and further away from their humanity, but at the same time causes them to discover who they really are. And so it's really interesting to kind of see, to, to have written that transformation. I mean, do we want to like talk about the ending at all? or I've like got spoilers, we've already warned. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when they just die at the end, I mean, of exhaustion and trauma, it's like, I'm making a point there, <laughs> right? Sometimes you just want to curl up. Yep. Felt that many a times. Yeah. Even at work. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Underneath the desk has looked mighty appealing to me quite a lot. I know. And like, sometimes you have that instinct and you're like, how is this healthy? How is this life? How is how? Yeah. Why do we live like this? And that's what Alien is about, right? That's why I love it so much. So anyway, yeah. So I really wanted to have her sort of get what she wanted, but not in the way that she wanted. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting angle to take you at. And I think that she probably thinks of herself as somewhat beautiful, or they think of themselves as somewhat beautiful. I mean, that's that's the beauty of, you know, the deep law kind of way you took it, because and another part of the reason that I like the concept of a hybrid is because it's so H.R. Giga, you know, it is, it is Lee, it is Syl, right, you know, right. and it is, it is alien. Oh, originally I was kind of like, I was like, oh, I could have her change her name to Lee after she, or after they become, you know, and then I was like, I heard that HR Giggers are like super litigious. So yeah, you'd you'd have been hearing from Leslie something. I forget his agent's name. Uh, You'd have been hearing from him. Yeah, I don't want to. (laughs) I mean, I do. I want to talk to him about HR Giger, but I don't want to be threatened. (laughs) It's it's such a a funny situation because his style is so ingrained, rightfully rightfully fucking so, yeah, in in the style. And And it's the style as well. It's his biomechanical styling that's formed such an important part of why Alien as a design looks so brilliant. But they can't go and take these other similarly styled stuff. Like right. in my head, Sill is an engineer weapon. I don't care what Fox or, or MGM says, but in my head, Sill is an engineer weapon that's just transmitted out there for uh, intelligent species to find and then fuck themselves literally over with. <laughs> I think that plays into it so right. I know, I know. And and it does. Everything feels like it's of a singular mythology. And and that's, yeah, and, I, and that temptation is really there. And, and I did some soul searching and I was like, yeah, but that's really not. It's not owned by Fox. Yeah. And, and truthfully, it would be wrong of me to try and induct it, right? That's his property. Why should I try and be like, no, we also own that? He didn't give his life to Alien. No, true. So, yeah. No, I, I think it's great, though. I, I, I definitely was inspired. But, you, you, I mean, you did get to revisit Giga with uh, Blue anyway, because it was it was Michelle the Michelle Parfer Alien. 
Yeah. So, so I, I went really deep and I was like, okay, what does Fox own though? And it was like, oh, they own these concept drawings. <laughs> Even to the point of the head plates, you know, because I thought that was fucking brilliant because that was something he'd pitched and it didn't make it into the film at all. But yeah, there's, there's this mood sort of communication thing. I thought it was brilliant yeah. that you, 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 you just dug the lore up. I was like, okay, Alex, seriously, get out of my fucking brain because this is exactly the kind of stuff that I dig so much. Yeah, I really did try to go pretty deep on on a lot of the references. And, you know, it also was cool because when I looked at that plate design, I was like, you know, why would it have a brain that moves as the wind blows the grass, right? That's the, that was, that was the Giger quote. Why does it have that? That's weird. What is it trying to do? And then I thought about dancing bees. There are all kinds of bugs that communicate essentially through semaphore. There are those spiders that, you know, those, their mating dance is really... You know, bees are the same way, right? They dance, they vibrate their thoraces, I think, to make noises. And so, you know, it really seemed to be kind of in line with O'Bannon's fear of insects, you know? So, yeah, that's where it really kind of coalesced for me. So it was like, oh, Blue could use this as like an intimidation system, you know? And, and so, you notice for most of the book, anytime they encounter a drone, the drone's like, ah, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Until it gets damaged. Yeah. And then the drone's like, oh, you're imperfect. Fuck you. <laughs> so so Blue and their intent with the Queen's Code, mm. did they inject it wanting to mutate into an alien, or was she hoping it had just been a working cure at that point? No, I think they expected what happened because, well, I mean, there's the rat, right? You know, basically it was, oh, no, the company got what they wanted. They're going to kill me. Hmm. And that 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 description of her in that room of them in that room was just absolutely harrowing as well. Literally, mm. just a head kept alive with machines. It's like, good fucking god. Yeah. Well, and that's how they ended the Cold Forge too, right? Like, yeah. and that was why whenever everybody was like, "Let's have a sequel," I'm like, <laughs> "How?" There's a head on the wall. We can't can't have them running around getting smashed to pieces again, can you? You know what, though? Let's go ahead and let's get Commander Pike's later career. <laughs> right? like, I mean, part of the point of Cold Forge was that an unlikely character could survive. And, and you know, um, it was based on J.C. Hutchins' advice of find the character least equipped to deal with the situation, and that's your horror main character. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's brilliant. And Blue is inspired really heavily by a terminally ill child that I know. You know, that was also another reason why it was like Blue's story has to be great. I can't I can't settle for I was actually somewhat disappointed at how harshly people judged Blue for needing a cure. It was like, oh, well, it was all in self-interest. And it's like, so what? Blue hasn't been allowed to live. But at the same time, I mean, you know, collaborating with unknown actors did get everybody killed. So <laughs> don't you think that's kind of funny in a an interesting way you know i like it in that everybody is gray nobody is simple there is no simple answer to anybody's motivations or personality or behavior you know you mentioned mary earlier mm -hmm. she's a lovely old woman with ra who's racist there's more to her than one thing and it was one of the things i loved about blue in the first book Mm -hmm. because it's like you say yes it's self-interest it's self-serving but it also benefits everybody right. but if people are zoning in on the self-serving aspect of it what do you think that says about everybody because everybody's self-serving and if you're focusing in on that point as a reason to dislike that person what's that say about you 
I know, I know. It does kind of like, oh, I'm mad at Blue for daring to try and have what I have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, and it's so, yeah, it, it's definitely, that's written pretty largely into both of these books. And one thing I always love pointing out about Cold Forge is Dorian's correct about almost everything he says. Like, if everybody listened to Dorian, they'd all probably be alive. <laughs> Ah, but Dorian didn't read his escape packet. He'd have been alive if he did. I know. He really should have paid more attention. They should have paid attention. Uh, I love that. I love that because I have done so many OPSEC briefings and I'm like, I hope I don't almost die in here because <laughs> I'm not paying any attention. I don't to remember the combination that you just said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I fucking love the realism. The, it just it, it pulls me in. It really does. So much of what I read in your books is just like, yep, I get this. I believe this. You know, my favorite thing about Mary is, you know, she starts out the, the book and she's like, oh, I'm afraid to go down there because I won't be getting any bacon and they're not Christian. And, uh, she, you know, she says all these horrible things. And then at the end of the book, of course, we start to kind of understand. I think I think she comes around and is not going to be so judgmental anymore. Right. And so she's like, so so I think that Mary has a different relationship with her Iranian comrades after this, you know, like her and Cameron probably get along. However, when she meets an emancipated android, she's like, we got to get out of here. I can't trust that thing. You know, and she immediately is like, nope, yep. nope <laughs> I don't like the slave having a mind of its own. <laughs> and she didn't take care of Marcus at all. They didn't like more. No, him. no, they, they did not take care of him. Poor guy. And I and because the only person who would have who would have mourned him wasn't there at the time. She was dead at the time. Because you can kill her halfway through a fucking book and you're just off to. That was so satisfying, by the way, because long time ago, many, many years ago, I was at a sleepover in high school and I got into a debate with another kid. And I was like, I think you could trick everybody into thinking that somebody's the main character and then kill them halfway through. And he's like, no, everybody would quit reading. So uh, and I haven't called him to say that I was right because we didn't, <laughs> we're not really talking very much anymore. But this is one of those things where I was like, wow, you know, like I'm going to bring that back and I'm going to fucking do it. I always wanted to do it. I believed it could be done. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I mean, have, have you seen sort of reaction to that big drop? Yeah, people always, the people text me a lot. And what's great is I try to give you like fallbacks though. Like I spend a lot of time saying like, okay, you know, we're going to get to know Shine Comron. I'm just kidding, Comron's dead. Okay, now we're going to get to know Shine Becker. I'm just kidding, Shine's dead. And so I try to give you like a full part with the person that we're going to kill. And that way, and it, hopefully by the end of the book, you'll recognize like, oh, if somebody is a POV character, then that means that one of the two POV characters is dead at the end of this chat, or at the end of this part. And so each part belongs to two people. And I was really hoping one of the things that didn't land that I was hoping would land. And this is this this just speaks to the fact I like meta story. OK, so like I solve murder mysteries really easily. I go, who's the least likely candidate in the third act? That's it. I don't need evidence. I don't have to know anything. I'm not intelligent. This is who's the least likely candidate in the third act. And it's like, oh, if they were going to do, you know, if the butler is the surprise, but that would be cliche now, then it's not the butler. Right. It's whoever I'm the most comfortable with. There you go. Right. And so I, I look at the structure of stories and I look at like, where am I in the story? OK, this tells me the sort of thing that I'm going to see right now. And so in the fourth part, when Duncan becomes one of the prospective characters, I would have been horrified because I would have been like, there's no fucking way you're going to let Duncan survive. But I mean, I don't know that you would do. I don't you know, I was trying to get people to be like, expect me to do something really horrible. Because it's so hard to make somebody fear for the main character of an alien book. Ripley doesn't die. 
I mean, unless she dies heroically at the end, at which point she served her plot purpose. So she didn't die in a way that was meaningful to the story. Well, in a different way than was meaningful to the story. You know, she's not collateral damage of the book. And I, I wanted to be like, you don't know who the main character is. And actually, the more that you accept kind of the white default, right, the more that you're like, oh, it's, it's, it's you know, it's going to be like a classic MCU movie, right? Like the early days where like this is obviously the main character. She's got romantic tension with this guy. And she's, you know, and she's, she's, a, she's a savior character, right? She likes to jump in and save people all the time. And so that's valid and that's good. And it's like, no, no. That wasn't the set of skills that was needed. I'm sorry, but her bullshit mission work in Africa that she probably also did in high school also doesn't matter. You think that she's the main character because, you know, I try to make her a lot like the kind of classic homegrown. It's an absolute misdirection. And on top of it, it's alien, right? And so it's like, oh, final girl? No, the woman has to survive, yeah. Right. And so it's a chance to kind of say, like, you don't know, and I'm going to make sure you don't know. Was was that your experiment with this book the same way that Hating Lucy was in the first one? Well, this was, I mean, <laughs> it's not an experiment. It's the thrust of the book. But yeah, I, I wanted to make sure that you couldn't tell. Now, the experiment for this one was, I don't know if you remember, I used to ask you guys what gear you thought the book was in. Maybe you weren't in that one. You know, everybody kind of drops in and out. But where do you think you are in the book? What gear do you think it's in? And people always thought they were further along and that it was going faster than it was. And that was the experiment. Pacing wise. Yeah, because if you, I love when people are like, oh shit, stuff just got real. Shy lost $20 million. I'm like, you think that's when shit got real? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so I try to do these things that felt big enough to be major plot points to again misdirect you and kind of try and say, like, okay, this is the crisis. You feel like you understand the crisis. I'm just kidding, it's evolving. Turn it up a bit more on the imaginary plot dial. Oh, I know. And almost nothing changed from the outline, by the way. What I submitted to Titan is almost verbatim what I wrote. And I don't usually do that. But what I submitted to Titan was probably about 40 pages. Is that, typ- is that typical for an outline? No, it's like seven pages is normal. So this, this must have been in your head really well then, all along. Well, because there are a bunch of really difficult dimensions, right? Okay, so there's the geopolitical dimension. There's the fact that I'm sequeling the Cold Forge, which has an intimidating reputation for me. Because, like, you know, if I did write a third book for Alien, everybody's going to be like, this is going to be so good. And I'm like, what if it's not, though? <laughs> <laughs> like, I hope so. I don't know. <laughs> But, you know, there was that there was there was all kinds of, you know, there were environmental challenges to overcome because, you know, I wanted to make sure that this was a realistic uh, geological environment. I wanted to make sure that Blue got the right treatment and nuance that that character deserved. And because I was like, I did them wrong. You know, like I didn't get the message across. And part of it is also that I see a lot, you know, obviously I, I'm not I'm not black and I don't suffer like that. And so like I don't want to claim credit for that kind of stuff. But as far as her or as far as their gender identity and the way that they live with that inside of a corporation and the confusion that the world causes because they don't want to accept that. That's all really personal to me. And that's part of the reason why I killed that character. It's because it was like, I can't have y'all touching her. I'm sorry. Not trusting anybody else to Not do a chance. them justice. Yeah. Not a chance. I'm sorry. 
like I said, dealing with the medical discrimination and dealing with the queerness, I was like, I really want to make sure that this goes in the way I want it. And I don't want to hear that somebody like brought blow around for a rock and action sequence, you know, like uh. you have left a little a little door open, though. I mean, either side. Because there's all the stuff that they were up to on on the Black Star as well. Mm-hmm. So that was something else that I really wanted to do was usher in hopefully a new era of Alien by dropping just a ton of everything. Right? You anybody can hook in anywhere you want. It's open source. Right? There's a war now. So there's about a billion war stories. There's some survivors from this. They're not the characters that I would let you touch. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I'll let you touch the survivors because, you know, Cameron and Mary, they went through a lot. They're still father in the Black Star in possession of potentially the source sample that Blue was looking for. You know, we don't know what they brought onto the ship. You know, when she was look when they were looking for... I know. And, and by the way, listeners, the reason why we keep having trouble is because it changed over the course of the drafts. I, I decided that the co-workers were too accepting. That, you know, because Kamran, I don't know, you remember the original draft. Kamran was like, I guess they? And then Blue was like, yes, mm. do what I say, basically. And I changed that because I was, I was like, that doesn't seem as realistic. And I, I think, I mean, I do it. I still do it. You know, I oh, trip yeah. up over. That's different, though. That's you're trying. That's way different. So anyway, yeah, but those those kinds of issues are in the background of this book, and they're there on purpose, and they have they have really strong signals for people who are affected that way. People who are affected that way have written to me and told me about it, and that, that makes me feel good because that's who I'm trying to talk to. Hey, I know sometimes you feel like a monster and nobody wants to accept you for who you are, and it has nothing to do with anything except the way you were born, but I see you. And that was why I was like, I really hate that Blue was the villain sort of still in Cold Forge. I never, I never saw the saw them as a, the the villain. Right. It, it was part of what made the whole setup compelling to me was because again, it's not straightforward, it's not and I easy. love that. I love <laughs> yeah. that complexity of the books and the world. The, oh my god, the, you're gonna like this in. Deep Space Nine book. Oh, I have no doubt. I have no doubt. And, and it's going to be one that gets picked up because it's got your fucking name on it as well. I hope so. See, that's why I'm doing multiple tie-ins. I mean, I love Star Trek and I love and I love Alien. But one of the things I'm trying to do is I'm trying to demonstrate, like, you all should be reading my books. Please read my books. I, I want a career. I want to. I want to create an alien of my own. And I don't know what that's going to be, but it's going to be something that I wrote. Oh, I can't wait. I, I still have the third scavenger left to read. I've, I've read the first two. I haven't got around to the third one yet, but I I brought um, Every Mountain. It's, it's, it's Salvagers. Before listeners. we started, by the way. <laughs> yes, and The Salvagers starts with A Big Ship at the Edge of the Universe for anybody who's interested. And that one, actually, I'm really proud of that one because it's the best reviewed of the three. And it's the first time I've ended a trilogy before. And I'd never, I'd never written a trilogy before. <laughs> And and so it was terrifying because you you know you see all these these creators all these shows that you know let's let's just say they bomb in maybe the eighth season for mm-hmm. uh, for instance. Indeed, I wonder what that could possibly be in reference to. You know, it's who knows, who knows. So many, so many examples. You know, and so I was like, what if that's me? You know, like, oh my god. And so I I rewrote like half of that book. That's the longest book too. Like Into Charybdis is 120,000 words. The Worst of All Possible Worlds is 165,000 words. So it's a full third longer than Into Charybdis. But it does close up all the plot holes and sets up the characters in an interesting way while still ending the series. Like it's it's and and it takes you to all the places in the series that you're not supposed to go, right? 
there's LV223, you know, so to speak. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we've got, I've got my own version of that in the salvagers. There's Origin, right? And I wanted to make sure that it wasn't disappointing because there were plenty of like the hunt for Earth kind of stories that sucked when they got there, right? They got there and it was... Mm-hmm. <sighs> that last season of Battlestar. I know. <laughs> I know. And I like, I have nothing but respect for that show, but... Until the last season. <laughs> I think everybody feels that way, except the creators, probably. Although, when when did All Along the Watchtower come into it? Was that season four or five? Because I absolutely fucking loved that rendition anyway. Yeah, that was, that was really interesting, yeah. I liked I liked that that whole I mean there was a lot there was a lot of cool stuff there. It was just it was also really weird to be like this is a fantasy setting but Bob Dylan exists in it. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's brilliant. Maybe maybe that maybe that's genetic memory passed all the way up to Bob Dylan. Oh yes. Yes, everybody has a little Bob Dylan in them in the Battlestar universe. Well, only Cylons. <gasps> oh. Oh man. <laughs> oh, you know what? I've completely forgot where I was going. We're gonna tie it together in my third book, Tangled Up in Blue. No, I think I think that all delved off something else. Oh, what Blue was searching for. So oh, yes. they were looking for the pure Yes. Where where Plagiarius came from. Was the intent that it be exactly what was inside those ampules, or was this another sort of maybe that also came from something else kind of thing? Right. I can I can I can let that be whatever. I mean, that there really does need to be up to who tells the story in the future. But in my mind, what Blue was looking for was probably in those ampules. All right. And we have this corrupt strain that's rolling around making XX21s. But when you look at the engineers, I mean, they used this thing to seed all life on Earth. So, you know, there are other iterations of it. Ah, so you're thinking more the one at the start then? Yeah, I think if you I think if you found those things in the alien universe, and I had heard some lore, and, and I don't know how legit this is because I didn't go look it up, but I had heard some lore that the engineers had like a good version of it from back in the day that they used to make their miracles, but that it had become corrupt over time. That's okay. I love thinking that they had a good version and David was just like screwed around with it until it was like tamper resistant. <laughs> and he made some horrific monster and then it couldn't mutate anymore beyond that very much. And so Blue has hit a dead end and must find something that is more mutable. So that was my thinking. But again, it doesn't have to be like that. Somebody could come along and have a great story to tell in another way. How much of... So again, one of the things that I fucking love... I, I kiss your ass so much. One Aww. of the things that I really love as well that you do is now regarding the kill to cocoon ratio i read that review <laughs> no you didn't like that no. part <laughs> I, well i remember having this discussion with you when we were we were reading it i bet i forgot to make any edits on that part That's oh, probably- <laughs> I was like, so one of the things that i love that you do is plots clipping along it's brilliant i'm dragged in you drop a nugget that on its own right is just fucking holy shit that's awesome and then you're just on again Mm -hmm. we don't suffer for it but the brain's going right so it's it's like things like this you know what blue was searching for or the thing that why do all androids become obsessed with the xenomorph (laughs) why (laughs) i don't know and uh well there was the, the the amphitheater oh yeah how much of that do you actually have in here when you're doing it, even if it's not on the page? You know, even if it's there for somebody else to play with, you know, do you have a backstory for all these little nuggets that you drop? Oh, yeah. yeah, always. What was the deal with the amphitheater then, <laughs> by the way? Oh, okay. Well, I mean, that's got to be some kind of sacred site to the engineers. 
And and so if that's where their last uncorrupted sample might be, for example, then that's a holy place. They they built statuary in there. You don't build giant heads into the wall just out of like a sense of like zhuzhing up the place, you know, like and and so yeah, I thought that this was a like a sort of a mystical location, but in that super science way that the engineers have. So what the amphitheater was, I'm happy to say, is it is a sacred location where this one thing was housed. And then the aliens came and, you know. Defiled it. Defiled it. Yeah, just crapped all over it. Humped the colonists to the wall, as Duncan likes to say. But it might have been it might have been beautiful at a time. It might have been interesting. And I wanted to base it on that Giger painting in a lot of ways. You know, Isle of the Dead, which was in and of itself a cover. And so I was like, perfect. Giger's estate can't come after me because then Bachler's estate needs to come after him. And then they used that in Covenant as well, the original one. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and that's that's good. I love it. I think it's kind of cool, the idea that engineers maybe liked prefer that kind of structure. Here's a piece that didn't make it in that I really wanted to make it in, but I really couldn't figure out a way that characters would know this. So volcanoes that are silica volcanoes. Volcanoes have different silica contents. You're on about the weird pits of hell, kind of. Uh, actually, no, this is, this is even oh, okay. better. Okay, so volcanoes have different silica contents, and with less silica in there, they make sort of pointy volcanoes. Okay, like Pompeii has less silica. And because what silica is, is it's a it's like a fluid, it's a flux. So it's a conductive, it's a heat conductive flux. And so it sort of melts into the cracks of the rock and then causes the rock to conduct heat better so that it melts as well. And so silica makes everything more liquid and more plasticine. And so the kinds of things that you think of when you think of a silica volcano, you think of like, it doesn't look like a big peak. It looks like a round mound with a little on the top, just like the engineer storehouses. And I was like, it's a high silica content volcano formation, Atoll, you know, and then it's just like, I can't figure out anything else to put in the book. Like at what point is a character gonna say, oh, well, I happen to be looking at a scan of the island. And also I know about this thing that almost no one in the galaxy has ever heard of. <laughs> it just didn't, it didn't click. You know, you have to assume that nobody in Alien has met the alien before, or if they have, that it was classified or, you know, that kind of stuff. Oh, they turn out to be raging psychopaths. Right. <laughs> so talking about raging psychopaths, and you mentioning Duncan not long ago. Oh, yes. So that is the trope that Charybdis flipped. Yeah. It is your hero, and it is your goddamn fucking villain. And I think what's immensely interesting is you obviously loved Ryan here. <laughs> Even though you fucking hate what she's based upon. So talk to me a little bit, or talk to the listeners, I guess. You know, I know the story. But talk to the listeners about where your treatment of the colonial marines in this came from. Okay, well, first of all, so I've, I've worked with soldiers for much of my career. I care deeply about soldiers. And so when I was going to do this book, I was like, I have to make sure that the veteran perspective is correctly represented. But at the same time, there definitely needs to be somebody who's bad. And we have a couple of different war criminals who were pardoned over the course of me writing this. And that happened pretty regularly in the Trump administration. And it's hard to watch your soldier friends go through seeing the honor of their service diminished because people will look at the army and they'll go, oh, you know, you guys are the ones that committed those horrible atrocities, right? And, and then that, oh, no, that person, we arrested that person and we sent them to jail. No, that person's a commentator on Fox News now. They got famous because of it. So, no. 
And because of the nature of libel cases and things like that, I'll let you figure out who they are. But these people are traitors in my mind, and they're damaging to their fellow soldiers. They endanger their fellow soldiers with their behavior. When you can't reliably conduct an operation where you need to deliver food because your idiot lieutenant went and shot at a civilian for no reason, that's not okay. And when your base gets blown up because they killed the wrong person, that's not okay. And so these people have to be stopped. And we didn't do that as a country. And I know that there's a lot more to it, blah, blah, blah. Look it up yourself. But that's why I wanted to put it in there. And when I when I consulted, though, or when I got consultants, I had people from the Marine Corps, from the Army. I had war crimes investigators, right? people who dealt with some really dark stuff, you know, rape investigations, murder investigations. And talk to them about the kinds of things that might be required to pull something like this off. A remarkably few number of people are co-conspirators in the Midnighters. It's actually less than half the unit. It's just, it's the command half, <laughs> you know? And when it's like, Aaron, take the shit to the dropship. And you're like, shouldn't I go check on the colonists? It's like, Aaron, I said, take the shit to the dropship. What, what are you going to do? No, Captain, I think there's something wrong. No, because you don't know. And you have no evidence that she's done anything illegal. And then every time you do, she's like, I have a legal tasking order. Nobody asks for it. They're all scared of her. And by the way, I've known a lot of people who, you know, just like I have lots of soldier friends, I've had some soldier enemies. And, you know, and, and sometimes you meet people who are like that, who love to bully, who love to look right through you. I love this. My favorite scene to write for Duncan is the one where she's talking to Shy in the command center right when they arrive. And Shy's like, you don't know what the hell you're getting into. All of you are bunch of fucking amateurs, all this other stuff, you know, just because Shy is thinking what we're thinking. We all saw aliens, you know, uh, we know how this goes. And, and so that scene where Duncan responds to her in a way that is as humiliating as possible while still enabling Shy to feel like she's fighting so that it can feel worse when she wins. I've had people behave that way around me and it sucks. And, and, and those people are usually kind of toxic. <laughs> Like, if somebody acts like that, I guarantee you they're worse in other parts of their lives. Anyway, Duncan is absolutely based on some real people that I've met. And it's interesting because, you know, sometimes you meet somebody and they're great and you, you get to befriend them and you find out about their amazing service. And then other times you meet somebody and they look right through you and they're mean and there's something else. And, and then you find out that maybe they've shot hundreds of people in the course of their service. And it's like, I don't know how to square the fact that you don't seem to see me as a human being with the fact that you've killed a lot of them. But like I said, I believe in the armed services. I believe in my soldier coworkers. So yeah, that's where it came from. Whenever somebody says you're going after the Colonial Marines, I always say Becker's the Colonial Marines. Have you have you seen that kind of response? Only once. And it was and it was actually something that Clara brought it up from the forums. She said that, you know, that there were some some doubters in that regard. And I was like, yeah, well, then they don't know who the Colonial Marines actually are, because Becker is the one that's following the law and everything that he's doing makes him the commanding officer. It's really interesting twist as well in the way that you expect your alien story to go. You know, the corporate people are the bad guys. You know, the Iranians should be the bad guys. They're, they're, they're a, a corporation. They're Middle Eastern. And then you get the heroes show up and, um, yeah, they're war criminals. Oh, sorry. I also forgot the number one thing that kept happening while I was writing to into, into Charybdis was white people kept calling the, the police on people of color in the United States trying to get them hurt or arrested. The, the the barbecue lady. 
That's like one of like 20 or 30 or hundreds probably if if we take the whole thing in aggregate. But it was a it was a it was such a common news story to see at the time and I was just like here it is the the, the version cuz Noah calls the cops. They're like don't call the cops Noah. And he's like I wouldn't fuck me I'm going to call the police. <laughs> oh so unusual careers is one of your things. I think we can say this when it comes to character stuff. Yeah. And Shy, unless I'm completely misremembering, Shy seems to have had a bit of your previous career in terms of UX design. Current career. Oh, is he still doing? Oh, yes, yes. Almost every author you know has a day job, I'm sad to say. We're getting there, though. Thank you, fans. We're eh, <laughs> one step at a time. Keep buying them. Let Alex just write books all the time. Please, yeah. I, I have to write like two or three books a year in order to continue making career progress. So please buy them. So so how much of Shy's can sat there frustrated about Noah doing her job? Yeah. Did that all come from experience? I can't say which company. I'm not going to tell you anybody's name, but we had a guy who he would do that. He would send stuff to a woman who worked for me, essentially fait accompli, right? And he'd say, oh, here's the PowerPoint. Make that exactly. And he would go through and he would have put his ideas all over every single ticket. And what that did was that denied this person their agency in the design process. It made the, you know, turned them into what I call a fancy mouse. That's where somebody comes up and clicks you where they want you to go, right? And click, click, click. Do Photoshop for me, right? That's no good. And you can't have that kind of undignified relationship as a designer. And so, yeah, I, I used to, I, I, I called this guy out for that particular behavior because, you know, and I, I'm over here like, go ahead, say it was you, feel free. Uh, <laughs> you know? But it's sexist. He wasn't, he didn't do that to the men. And, you know, and he just marched all over this person because she was shy, literally. Is that where that came from? No, no, but that's that's funny. No, it came from the Cheyenne dropship. Which I thought that was a cool little moment as well, you know. And then her just being like, and... <laughs> yeah, I like when she goes up to the APC and she goes, is this one named after me as well? <laughs> and I'm just like, shut up, please shut up, stop talking. <laughs> I loved writing her towards the middle of the book. She was such a privilege to write. I, I hated to kill her off, I did. Because, like, she was super fun. When she stopped giving a shit, like, when she's just like, fuck all you... You suck, Jerry. This is all stupid. You guys are all going to die. You know, kind of. <laughs> it was like she'd seen a horror movie before. So when Cold Forge was first announced, mm -hmm. one of the first pieces of interaction that me and you had, uh -huh. you saying, if I liked Labyrinth, I was going to like the Cold Forge. Yes. Of course. That was also of his level similarities, you know. Um, it's all, yeah, all part of the charm of it. But one of the things that I noticed with Intercaribdis was it had some imagery that I thought was pretty evocative of Labyrinth. Okay. Issue two, issue zero specifically, uh -huh. and that was with the prey suits and blue ripping off heads. Was that deliberate? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, they, yeah, they were in there, and they had their they had their fitter injection, right, or whatever it was called, and and the the big their big dog handling suits, and, and it was like that wasn't ever gonna work. <laughs> you people are idiots. But yeah, I liked that. I liked that. And I mean, you know, it's hard not to remember those kinds of scenes when you're working on that. And the prey suits were based on the reactive armor of the M1 Abrams, which I've always been interested in, reactive armor. But I don't actually know that it's a great idea. It seems like personal reactive armor could potentially be very, very dangerous. When you had some situations where it didn't quite work out to the advantage. 
when I was a kid, they had this toy. It's just the world's worst toy. And and like they were basically little concrete balls coated in gunpowder. Okay. And you'd click them together and they'd make a little spark. It's like cap gun gunpowder, like flash powder. Okay. And so you'd click them together and they make a little spark. And it made the tiniest, shittiest little spark. But every time Blue would like knock them against each other and like stuff like that, I kept thinking, oh, I was just banging those little balls together. <laughs> Oh, I thought that sounded brilliant. Yeah, that was a good time. So, as is tradition on this podcast, and when we get to chat to people, I always ask our community members, is there anything you'd like me to ask this cool person on your account? And, uh, well, it saves me having to do all the questions. (laughs) But So, we we do have just uh, we. I'm talking as if I've got Adam here with me as well. I do have a couple of questions from from our our guys and girls. So, first up is one, well, there's a couple actually, from one of our long-standing members and Xenopedia editor, Mm -hmm. who the fuck? So, he asks, was it Alex's intention from the start to go full aliens with this after the more alien style of the first book? Yes, very much. And I'm glad that that this person picked up on that, because that's exactly right. I wanted the very first book, I was like, I want this to have a very alien kind of feel. I want it to be really similar to Ridley Scott's style. And this one, I wanted to kind of open up the gasoline a little bit more and let it really, let it rip a bit. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, that's why the more Cameron-esque action sequences, because I wanted to, I wanted to say like, okay, the first one was kind of my answer to aliens. The second one is really my answer to alien. Or the first one's alien, second one, aliens. If I were to do a third book, I guarantee there's prison imagery all through it. <laughs> that was actually another something else that one of our other uh, members was thinking. I, I'd find some, I'd find some way that you wouldn't expect, but it'll, it'd, it'd be Alien Three ish somehow. Okay. Well, in that case, Trash Queen, there you have your answer to your later question for a potential for a third book. You nailed it. <laughs> and and Huda also asks, and I'm wondering if you're you're doing this on purpose to make people ask this about your books. Where did the eggs come from? The Black Star, A Queen We Never Saw, or Egg Morphin? There was only so many eggs, I think, mentioned on the Black Star, but you had your hundreds of colonists. Yeah, they ate most of the colonists, though, as we've discussed. Is that why? Is that why you've done this? I've only got twelve eggs. Yeah, they're like, they're like, yeah, we've got twenty something eggs here. I, I basically assumed that there was a fifty to seventy five percent attrition because of like Duncan like starved them and riled them up a bunch, as you know. And so that was kind of that was my thinking. And so Blue has been robbing these sites for a long time. How many eggs are in the Black Star's hold are not actually stated. Could be dozens, could be hundreds. So the Marines find them in the Black Star. And then when inventorying and housing the aliens, they go ahead and they gave the aliens access. Like they put the eggs in and they were like, okay, when they get out, they're going to know where to go. And one of the things I really liked writing about the aliens is they instinctively always know to go lower in Charybdis. They were putting stuff all over everything except the holiest parts of that site. I was really surprised they let me do that, actually, because I, I don't know if the aliens care about the engineers or not. But I like the idea that maybe they're like, oh, I don't even, I don't even, I don't even, even I don't want to screw with that. <laughs> <laughs> a, bit, a bit of that genetic memory again going off. Right. Like, that's obviously the master. Like, I kind of thought that maybe they would recognize that that's their creator somehow in the same way that we did. Yeah, but we didn't respect our creator. No, and he beat the shit out of us. <laughs> Guy Pierce, bless him. Oh, poor Guy Pierce. Should have just hired an old person. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's what you get for removing your earlier scenes, eh? I guess. I know. I know. They had their chance. They had their chance. So, who does who does last question is? Can you write every alien book from now on, please? I mean, like in your heart, maybe. 
<laughs> just do what i do say that all the alien books end after alien 3 right like it's the same thing i do for the movies right like four that was a weird dream i had that was pretty good in some spots Alien versus Predator is a as a movie as a book. I love Noguchi and 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 all the other. I think I'm getting that right. It's been like twenty something years. And uh, Noguchi, yeah. Did I get it right? See, that's how good it is. Michiko Noguchi, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Unless I'm butchering the name because I butcher all names. The pronunciation. We're not standing by that. Neither one of us should do that. <laughs> yeah. But we got the name spelling correct, and that's what matters. But as a movie, that's just like that's like a bad rumor. And I saw it in the theater, but like I just I hated it so much. Paul Anderson, I'm sorry. You know, you seem like a fun director. Like I would want to work on a Paul Anderson movie. Don't get me wrong. I think that would be really fun. It depends if we're talking Event Horizon, Paul Anderson. I think it's a shame we didn't get him. Oh well, yeah, I know. But I mean, that's that's lightning striking, is what that is. Yeah, that's such an underappreciated movie. I love Event Horizon. Mm-hmm. It totally influenced me. I couldn't I couldn't stop thinking about it. It rings the same bells as Alien, you know, it's like <laughs> Alien. I just love it's like hyperspace. Hyperspace is through hell. That's the one thing. <laughs> it's just like, what it's so Doom as well. It's hell? so Doom. I know, I know. And I really, I and Battlefleet Gothic really kind of has a... I don't think it's... Oh, this is a Games Workshop. Oh, uh, is it the Warhammer stuff? Yeah, it, it, yeah. The Event Horizon ship kind of reminds me of a Space Marine ship with their weird, like, flying cathedrals. So, so only in your heart, who will Alex write all the aliens? Sorry, I'm sorry. Hey, I will tell you this, Titan. You know, in order to make things right, I have to. If I'm working on an alien book, other opportunities get passed, right? And I don't mind that, by the way. I love writing for Alien. But at the same time, you know, this book probably really needs to hit the bestseller list in order to make it continue working. And that's not likely to happen. So on the one hand, I want it to happen. But, you know, Into Charybdis wasn't really likely to happen either. And Titan dug deep and, and made it work. But, you know, the ball's, the ball's in their court again. If this does well, they can cut me in and because I don't get royalties. It's work for hire. It's not like Alan Dean Foster's situation. You know, they owe him that money. They don't owe me anything ever again. Different they own those stories. Right. Totally different contracts. And so I have to get all that money up front. And so like, if I underprice myself, I left a huge amount on the table. And so in order to make this work, it needs to be proven to Titan that they need to pay a lot more. And that's that's going to be really hard. That's unfortunate as well, because I think the release has been a bit fucked up. Because of the pandemic, yeah. Well, well, I don't necessarily know if that's what's happened. But, you know, in the UK, it took an extra like two months for this to finally show up. I know, I know. But, you know, I'll tell you, I love the people that work there at Titan. I love my editor. I love the publicists. I love them all. So, like, I, I tend to think that if it didn't show up on time, it's because they got screwed over. Hmm. By the stuff, yeah. Yeah, it's. I'm just glad it got out. But it, it does mess up the timing because, you know, to hit the bestseller list, you need a lot of sales in a short period of time. It's that, it's that early push, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And that's usually when it's determined whether you're going to make it or not. And so if they made in turn, you know, and kind of in the end a bestseller's worth of books, that's fine. They might they might come back. Who knows? I'm open to it. I'm certainly open to it. I feel like I was born here. You know, I know how to write Alien. I love Alien. Oh god, yeah. Oh god, yeah. You have proven this time and again. Oh, it's one of my it's one of my favorite places to be. Every time I it's so familiar. You know, you just start writing in there and you're like, I'm just gonna write some shitty work stories. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. It's my life plus aliens as these books. Oh, yeah, I know. And I'm sure you as an IT person saw a bunch of bunch of good jokes in there. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of UX jokes in there, of course. But yeah, Shy and I have the same job. I am kind of worried now if you are going to do an Alien 3-esque thing with prisoners, where you're going to be pulling this from. Mm. Although, you know, I, I can offer my uh, experiences there. 
Oh, oh, like as a, oh, did you yes, work in a prison? I, 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 I'm IT in a prison. Oh, oh, interesting. Okay. Oh, yeah, man. Oh. I've, I've got some stories. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, I think we can definitely consult when Steve Titan have a check for me. Okay. So, guys, memes at the ready again. Please buy the books before you harass the staff. Please. (laughs) Okay. Please tell them that you love it. Okay. Picture with a good comment and then memes. Oh, yes. Yes. They love that social engagement. Let me tell you, you tag my publisher, you're doing me a big favor. Anytime somebody tags the publisher and says like, hey, Titan Books, at Titan Books, I love Into Charybdis and all this other stuff, that is a vote to get a third book. And it's worth a lot more than voting for it for the Hugos or the Nebulas or any of that stuff. You know what to do, guys and girls. That's right. Say, tell Titan you like it if you like it. And that's actually everything. Just before I do let you run off, though, is there anything that you'd like to say that I just haven't given you the chance to talk about? I want to say how grateful I am to everybody for, you know, for going along with Cold Forge and into Charybdis, because I know that I am doing things that are weird and subversive on purpose. And I just kind of I assume that you've already seen the movies and you're immune to all that stuff. So it's really nice that there's been such a great response from the fan community because I didn't expect that. And I don't know how Star Trek is going to go. I'm not going to I'm not going to sit here and assume that just because the alien fandom is full of a bunch of really nice people. But Star Trek is full of a bunch of really nice people because I know some people who write for Star Wars. <laughs> they say that fandom can be rough. I've seen I've seen some unpleasant Star Trek people as well, which oh, always disappoints yes. me because it's Star Trek. It's supposed to be about acceptance. I know, I know. And what better characters for you to write as well than Dax? Oh my god, I know. I'm so excited. I love Dax. I just I finished writing it recently, so like I've been rereading it. She's so great. She's so like cool and powerful as a as a person. She's a really strong presence. And and you know, it's Jedzia Dax. I'm sorry, Ezri. I feel bad because Nicole DeBoer came on my show a long time ago and she was so nice to us and I'm like, Yeah, but I didn't write about your Dax. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're not my favorite. It's not her fault. She didn't write the show. <laughs> that was a whole bum deal, wasn't it, anyway? Oh, I know. I don't know why. I don't know why they would make that change. And I've heard some rumors that I don't like, but uh, I don't know why. I don't know why. And and by the way, don't don't quote me on that. I have no knowledge of these things. It's a, it's a whole. You can you can Google all this online if you're interested yeah. in Star Trek and that story. Yeah, or watch what we left behind. Yeah, that was really good. She mm-hmm. got very emotional in that one. That was uh, was an interesting doc. Here. Anyway, if, if we mentioned Alex's wine in a Star Trek book, I can't remember. Yes. <laughs> if we said it explicitly. So this is something that really had driven me a little bit crazy about the Dax backstory. Okay, in the episode Equilibrium, right, we find out that Joran Dax exists, and the for- murderer one. The murderer one. Right. So Jedzia Dax has all these previous hosts and one of them murdered some people and they covered it up. Okay. And that's a cool backstory. And that's really interesting because it's something that we need to reckon with as as people. You know, when somebody says like, hey, your grandfather committed an atrocity, you need to be like, oh, that's bad. I should read about that. You know, like I need to know what I can do to right this wrong now. So it's great to be able to face those kinds of things, but like a lot of people have trouble doing that. And so Joran was such an interesting allegory because, you know, here she has inherited sin. And this isn't the first time that she's dealt with that, by the way. In the first season, Curzon, her, her, her previous host, had uh, goes on trial for murder. 
and they they're like we're trying to try the current host for the the crimes of the previous host because symbionts believe that Jadzia feels like she is Curzon Dax. And so she stands trial. And so twice now, Jadzia has kind of been called to the mat for murder. And it's really interesting because in Equilibrium, she spends the last third of the episode unconscious while her male co-workers solve the mystery. And I was like, that's really boring. She's the main character of the freaking episode. So there's more to the story. And it really works pretty well, I think. And it relenses it all. So like... It all works with the series, but what if something slightly different happened than what we feel like happened? And so there's a lot to it. It's really fun. There's a lot of Worf. There's a lot of Kira, a lot of Dr. Bashir. Garrick? Have we got have we got some good Garrick stuff going off? I did not get room for Garrick. I'm <sighs> sorry. He, he's um, Andrew Robinson's going to be at a convention near me soon. I don't tend to go for Star Trek stuff, but I'm, really, I'm thinking of going just, to, just for him. It was hard because I, I, there are some times when like Dr. Bashir, you know, because he used to love Jadzia. So like there are times when he's like kind of moony over her and she's just like, man, he really needs somebody who's like more orderly and more, you know, like she's basically describing Garrick, <laughs> you know, like because they had such good chemistry. They were so cute together. Mm-hmm. But I love how the producers were like, we chickened out. Yeah, I went up to it, didn't they? Yeah, that's good. They should admit it. And that way I can I can work on that, right? I can, I you know, I'd hate to take away. I don't know if I could write Garrick knowing that Una McCormick exists. She's like the the number one Garrick super fan. She's also a Star Trek writer. Ah, yeah. I was wondering, why do I recognize that name? Yeah, I couldn't, I, I couldn't, I couldn't write Garrick. Fair enough. Well, this is good. Yeah, y'all, y'all, y'all pre-order it. Star Trek Deep Space Nine Revenant. And of course, Alex's other stuff. <laughs> yes, please, please, yeah. Especially things like royalty bond. Yeah. Salvagers, yes, definitely salvagers. Have we got anything coming out after Star Trek? We do. We do. Unfortunately, it doesn't have a name yet. Un- Untitled Alex Wyatt Project. I know. I had a name. It was a working title. It's a, it's a trilogy, though, that's coming out from Orbit. The, so the same people that did the Salvagers trilogy. And so it's going to be these big books. And it's like a it's giant robots plus rock and roll and jazz. And it's like really bizarre. <laughs> I was, I was going to go, Alex, give me the crazy, you know, race car driver and a, a magician chase a spaceship pitch. There we go. Robots and jazz. I, I co- the, the original code name was Jazz and Giant Robots, which as an acronym is Jaeger. J-A-G-R. But it's really cool and it's it's got a lot of like AI and kind of hive mind stuff going on and it's really trippy, but at the same time, it's it's a, it's it's very much a pandemic book. And in that it's this like wonderful, freeing, futuristic fantasy where we go everywhere and we have all the wonderful interactions that we want to have face to face and that kind of stuff. But it also deals with a lot of the isolation and difficulty of the pandemic. And so it was weird to have this like high flying space opera, but it's kind of depressing in places. Was that an intentionally topical thing or was did that just happen? No, it just happened. I mean, we lost all of our disability services when the pandemic hit because the people who would come to the house to help are, you know, vectors. And yeah, whenever people are like talking about like, what would you do in the, the apocalypse? I'm always like, we'd get left behind and die. You know, and and let me tell you, nothing proved I was righter about the Cold Forge than the pandemic. They abandoned us. And the whole thing about the Cold Forge is like, they wouldn't rescue Blue if they had the chance. Because what's the point, right? Oh, they're not going to live that long. And when people make those kinds of distinctions, it's just bigotry. So anyway, that's a cheery note. That was, yeah, that, that, was a, <laughs> that was a note to end towards. But it's it's a big part of what gives the books their heart and soul. So, you know. Indeed. You wanted to know. There it is. Right. Well, thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me.
last last one of everybody to have you on because it took me so long to get the book, but we we got there. I know. At least you got to read it early. True, true. But to me, it's I've not read a book until I've got these dead plants in front of me and I'm tactically turning them. You know, I have one question for you. Shoot. No one has ever written a book targeting my tastes specifically. What was that experience like for you to be like sort of professionally catered at? It was fucking mad. Yeah. It was so exciting, so weird, and so satisfying because it me- I'm metaphorically turning the pages as, as I'm reading this first draft. But so many times, you know, I'd have to pause and be like, holy crap, this is just like I, I, I remember leaving notes as I'm going, you know going along going this is awesome i cannot wait to find out where this goes you know like the black star showing up and 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 it being covered in resin i was like okay yep i want more please because i mean it wasn't the direction you went with it but like one of the things that i always thought about was the idea of perhaps the hive itself is intelligent and maybe right the, the aliens could have their own spaceship. Oh, that's 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 based on a pitch. Or that was a pitch that I wanted to do. Not 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 that, that they had their own spaceship, but that they were a neural network that got smarter the more of them that there were. And I pitched that originally to Titan, like in like 2015. And I was like, oh please, please, and they, they wouldn't go for it because it nails down it nails down too much of the biology and it's too uh, easily contradicted. Yeah, exactly. So now directors have their hands tied. I don't think so. And it's the same thing. Like I want to, I want to nail down the Android stuff. The relationship between the Android and Plagiarist Prepotence is like endlessly fascinating to me. And I just want to nail it down. But like, and let me tell you that that would be a huge part of the third book. If I wrote another one, I want to explore that conspiracy theory. Okay. Because I think every Android is obsessed with the alien. And I think that part of that is that they've all seen the post David strain. And I have to wonder if they're not like recognizing something without knowing that they are. Something unconscious as such. You're right. So one of the things that I think about a lot is I see um, like these AI designed struts, for example, and they don't look human. They look more like Giger drawings than, you know, like bridge struts designed by computers. And and so those kinds of things kind of that does kind of work. And at the same time, it creates an order that the androids might be able to see that is beyond what humans can see. That would be a really interesting route to take. As much as I hate the David creation angle, but I know, I know. But like once they once they went with it, I was like, I can I can I can do that though. I and all right. If you're listening, anyone in the studio, I will absolutely make that story work. If you hire me, I can make that story work. But I've seen loads of comments as well being like, can we get Alex and Noah together, please? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> please. If any of you know Noah Hawley, <laughs> right, just, just refer him my way. I don't care. I'll do whatever it takes to make the deal happen. So, all right. Well, I guess we should wrap it up, huh? Yeah, okay. We'll be going on forever. Alex, where can people find you online if they want to send you love or buy your books? Go to Alex White Books on Twitter. That's me, Alex White Books. And then also, if you look on my Twitter page, my pinned tweet has an address for Read It Again Bookstore. And that is my local bookshop that ships almost anywhere. And and like I don't know, maybe they ship overseas. But if you email them or you call them and you say you want to buy my books, I will go. I will drive over there and sign it for you. If you say you want me to sign it to someone, I'll go sign it for you. 
Okay. So if you want an autographed copy, go to my Twitter bio or go to my Twitter page. Look at the top pinned tweet, Alex White Books, go to Read Again Books. And that's my way of directing business to local independent bookstores while still getting to have them do all the shipping work for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because otherwise I got to maintain a post office box. I'm going to go to the post office all the time. Like it's no good. Who's got time for that crap? Exactly. Whereas I can go to the bookstore, I can send a couple extra copies. That's cool. They're great. So seriously, I mean, everybody listening, if, if you like the Cold Forge, if you like Intercaribdis, Go read Alex's other stuff. You know, I, I said in my, again, in my review of this one, I got a kick-ass fucking book from Alex. Alex got a fan from me that extends Aww. past Alien. And that is genuinely, I, I gave Salvages a go based on how much I liked Cold Forge. And I kept buying it because of how much I liked the book itself. So give the stuff a go, especially if you really do like these, these Alien books. Thank you very much. No worries. So thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been Aaron Percival. And this has been Alex White, and we commit this podcast to the flames with a glad heart. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Alien 3 before the next book. That's it. That, that's your lot. See ya.